My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. I'm your co-host Eric Vespi. I'm Scott Wampler. And today we have a very special interview for you. Our guest needs no introduction, but what the hell, I'm going to give her one anyway. She has starred in some of the most memorable films of all time and has worked with directors like Joe Dante, Steven Spielberg, Blake Edwards, Peter Jackson, and Rob Zombie. She faced off against a werewolf cult in The Howling, insatiable smart-ass furball aliens with teeth and critters, a personal favorite of mine, angry wallpaper ghosts and the Frighteners, and possibly the scariest of them all, government agents trying to take E.T. away. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll touch on all the above, but today we're going to focus on her role as Donna Trenton in the 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's Cujo. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Dee Wallace. Hi, everybody. Hello, Hi. <laughs> Hello, so Dee. We're excited to have you. Thank you. How are you enjoying quarantine and what have you? Well, you know, I'm a little antsy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, we I'm, are five months in. That's that's an acceptable response. Uh, yeah. I mean, I go to the grocery store and I visit my daughter and her guy because they're very serious about quarantine. And we have a couple of friends that we trust to come over social distancing, you know, but I just think, I think there's a lot of gifts that are coming out of this quarantine Mm -hmm. too. Like I got up one day and I went, okay, nothing's happening in the acting world. So I have a whole other career as a clear audience channel and healer. And I thought, you know, I've been wanting to write a book for two years another book. And uh, so I've knocked out three chapters on my next book. And I think if we all just get up every day and shift the focus from what the hell I'm a prisoner to, (laughs) okay, what can I create today? You know, what's something positive I can do with my time today? It, It You know, there's an old saying that goes, life answers the questions you ask, and that's the life you get. So if we all keep going, why is this happening? Why is this happening? All we're going to get is more BS, right? Because nobody knows why it's happening, guys. This is true. I think we've all been given a big time out. That's what I think. (laughs) I do do agree with you that one of the – there are not many positives to take away from uh, what's happened this year, but for creatively minded people, I do think you're right. This this has given us um, an opportunity to sort of focus on those things that we might have been setting aside for a while. And there's some value in that. It's it's unfortunate that this is uh, how we were given that time. But um, yeah, you know what the Latin core of COVID is? No. Live together. Huh. Yeah, huh. that seems to be an oxymoron. Right? It's, uh, <laughs> yes, it's kind of a poetic metaphor. Right. That's interesting. But you're right. I mean, uh, us like uh, we've been talking about doing this podcast for forever, and uh, it really wasn't until uh, we, honestly we started like doing our our first episodes a few what weeks or so before COVID really started. But like, it's this has definitely forced us to just hunker down and focus and really make this uh the show and it, and it is something that has very positively affected our uh you know or at least my point of view during this whole thing is having yeah. something to focus on oh yeah, yeah. the yeah. biggest it, thing i miss is being able to hug people i am right. such a hugger and a it's, connector and it's it's uh, you know i said the first thing when all this is over is I'm going to hug everybody I see, whether I know them or not. And I'm going to take my kids and we're going to a big old vacation in Hawaii. And that's, I don't care if I have to take it out of my savings, we're going to go celebrate somewhere all when all this is over. It, it's funny. I'm, I'm a hugger too. 
And my wife and I also, we basically built a movie theater in our backyard for a while. This is going on. Went and bought oh, a big screen cool. and a projector. And so um, we have people over like just a, a very small handful of people and everyone has to sit distanced and all of that stuff. And it's all outside in the backyard and yeah. open air. I mean, but it's always that idea. Eric. It's it's great. I could not tell you what a boost for morale is, but uh, the funniest part about it is at the end when you're wrapping up. Usually, that's when everyone gives gives a hug and they leave, and you can't do that anymore. So everyone just kind of yeah. stands awkwardly, and then it's like, okay, well, leave now. Okay, see ya. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's it's crummy, but anyway. But anyway, it's a lesson in adaptation, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> funny that you mentioned like wanting to go to hawaii when all this is done because i've had a a hankering to go uh, i've like had dreams about traveling to some of my favorite places that i haven't been to in a while uh during this whole thing and one of them and this is a segue into talking about your work one of the places that uh, i love to death and i consider my second home is wellington new zealand uh i love I love Wellington so much. Uh, I've I went there uh, in the early aughts to um, to visit the set of uh, Peter's Lord of the Rings uh, movie shooting Return of the King, and like kind of fell in with him and Fran and and that group, and and have since then been back multiple times over the years. and And I feel so at home in Wellington. Was that something that you did you feel feel oh, that when absolutely. you were there for the Frighteners? Absolutely. I and aren't Peter and Fran just the greatest people? They're, They're just, great. Uh, I, I just have a deep place in my heart uh, for them and that whole experience and all the people that I interacted with. And yeah, you know, New Zealand reminds me of America in the 50s and 60s. Mm. You know, just a pure, simpler, I don't know, easier, not so angry way of life. we've all become so angry here oh yeah in in this country don't get me started on politics (laughs) yes i noticed something like i was watching like the news in my time in new zealand and even like because there are racist people in new zealand and you know there are racist people everywhere but the racism almost seemed quaint there because there was like somebody that was being interviewed on the news about like i think there was a big story about the uh there's a high uh, asian immigration into new zealand and and some of the the kiwis weren't super happy about it and like they interviewed one guy and he was just like well i reckon you know maybe they should just go back where they came from you know or whatever (laughs) it sounded so sweet compared to our you know god awful uh you know super scary racism here yeah yeah well you know, you also have a government that's not feeling all that stuff. That, right. That's true. Yeah. I was going to say, and we got a bunch of guns in the mix just to make it <laughs> yeah. extra, true. extra fun for everyone. Yeah. So like just uh, real quick and touching on, on the Frighteners, um, that must've been a really fun character for you to, to play because what's so great about her is that you get the big reveal, right? Where she's the victim, quote unquote, the victim for the first part of the movie until you realize that she's not, that she's, you know, she's just as much of a, a threat as any, any of the, the ghosts in the movie. And, uh, uh, and, and I love, I loved seeing that in, in films where you, you take an assumption at the, the top and then get to completely twist it. And then when you go back and rewatch it, you realize she's playing at the beginning and that's part of the game and th- that she has. And it's like, I don't know, it just, it get it adds depth to, to films. And so I well, have to assume was, that. It was delicious. It was absolutely delicious for me to play her. Uh, I love doing horror films. I love the big arcs and the emotional uh, life that they give you, you know, to explore. And Patricia was, I mean, what actress wouldn't want to do a part like that where you get to play one all the way to the left part of you and then and then make this transition to all the way to the right side of who you are <laughs> and right. find all those colors, you know? Yeah, she was just, I was thrilled to death when I got that part. And uh, working with Peter, like I said, was a joy. 
a lot of people don't know that my husband of 18 years passed away during the Frighteners. Um, he had a heart attack and they flew me back and he was okay. They had done an angioplasty and he was okay. And he said, honey, you got to go back to work. Go finish the film. I'm fine. He was going home the next day. And four days later, blood clot hit his heart and he died. And oh, so I was back and forth. And you know, you know how far that trip, it's halfway literally around the world. Right. Four times in two and a half weeks. So oh I didn't God. know whether I was coming or going. Um, I packed up my nanny and my little girl and took them back with me. They had just come home. Fortunately, somebody was was here to handle everything until I got here, you know. Um, but man, that was and and um they just kept saying, Don't worry, D, we'll settle up at the end of the filming. Don't worry, we'll settle up at the end. Right. So I went in to settle up with the bookkeeper and she said, No, Mr. Jackson is just taking care of all of this for you because literally it probably would have been most of my salary all these wow. airline flights on business class you know right he's a good uh, dude I mean, that, that peter jackson yeah that's one one thing about peter and fran is that they they are some of the most giving people and they they don't view their cast or crew as kind of you know just puzzle no. pieces to to fit to fit their their vision together. It's like they, now, they, they, they're family and, and they treat, yep. they treat them like family. And I and, saw uh, Peter, you know, from the best boy all the way up through the DP. If anybody had a problem, Peter was open to hearing it. There, there wasn't the pecking order that we have here in America. No, oh, I mean, that, that's in- incredible. I can't even imagine the headspace that you'd be in, you know, having to no, try to juggle can't. all that stuff. And, and, uh, uh, you know, and I, it's a testament to your work that, you know, I don't, you know, I don't see a fracture of your performance, you know, in the movie. Like I, I wouldn't have never have guessed you were going through such uh heartbreak, you know, well, yeah, it's, real. On the screen. it's interesting because the stuff that was left to shoot was all the crazy stuff hmm. where she's just, flipping crazy and that was pretty easy to access because i just i was raw i didn't have you you know i um it took us forever to get back to new zealand the last time and i had to take a shower and go right to the set to film something and it was a scene where michael was standing and then he hits the floor before we go through the belly of the worm And I remember looking at doing the scene and seeing Michael, but when he hit the floor, it was my husband. Oh, wow. That's how in and out I was with reality. And so they sent me, Fran sent me over to this amazing doctor. You know, they're all really into homeopathic and natural stuff, but she was... Uh, a licensed doctor, but did a lot of the naturopathic also. And I walked in and she said, my God, Dee, I can't do anything with you until I work on your life force. You got nothing left. You just got nothing left. So it was an experience, a real experience of yin and yang, but so much love from Fran and Peter and everybody that just helped me through all that played with my kid everybody helped take care of gabby the guy even special effects guy even made a little flying harness for her so she could go up and fly like i had to fly i mean right yeah it was you can tell it's uh close to my heart that experience for sure I would like to to talk a little bit about um I mean listen it's impossible to talk to you and not want to bring up ET because that is you know that is such a cornerstone movie for you know pretty much anybody born from like 1975 on right yeah. and um 
but what I'm really curious about on, on that one is I'm also a huge fan of Poltergeist. And I know that those films were shooting kind of simultaneously or there was some overlap. I've seen pictures of Spielberg with uh, uh, Heather O'Rourke on one arm and Drew Barrymore on the other. It's like, w- did you experience any of that overlap? Like, did you go to the Poltergeist set or did you I have did any not. of that? I did not, no. but I can tell you that Steven works very far ahead. Yeah. You know, when he's doing one project, he's got his fingers into four or five other ones. Uh, so I initially auditioned for used cars. Oh, yeah, yeah. But when he saw me, he knew I was the quality that he wanted in the mama's ET, in E.T. Because he wanted her very vulnerable and childlike. And that's, you know, guys, whether I'm playing a mom or a grandma or a killer, <laughs> I just got that vulnerable thing going on. It's just a part of who I am. So they just called and offered me um, E.T. But I did well, not. It, no, I didn't know the overlap. That's interesting. But well, that doesn't it, it, surprise me. I, I know that you probably get this a lot, but like there, just as, as a kid, I was born in 81. And uh, as a kid watching uh, E.T., I related to your character so much because I, I grew up with a single mom. Like I like the the chaos of the, the scene when the kids are, you know, e- eating the pizza and they're, you know, and they're like making fun of each other and all that. That that was so true to my experience that like, you know, that, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just you don't get that authenticity in, in movies, let alone big movies like that much. Um, and, you know, your work there in particular, you know, the, the just the way like I, I'll always remember how you your your character laughs at uh, the penis breath line instead of like <laughs> yeah. turns into the scolding mom because that's how my mom was if I did something well, crazy. Well, I like your mom. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of improv. Well, first of all, I don't sit down and figure things out. I I just learn the lines and then I just want to be the character and let the character tell me where to go. So that was truly a merry moment. Um, But I have to say, I had a mom that had a great sense of humor about all that stuff. (laughs) You know, guys, my older brother worked his way through seminary shooting pictures for Playboy. That kind of, (laughs) yeah, that kind of sums up my family and me right there. We're all about God. And we've got a really raunchy sense of humor that can have a lot of fun in life, too. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, about six years after E.T. came out, somewhat notoriously, another uh, creative team attempted to launch their own version of E.T. called Mac and Me, which had been funded by the McDonald's Corporation. And it is like an infamously bad knockoff movie. It does almost all the same things that E.T. does. It just it just does them not nearly as well. I'm curious if you ever saw Mac and Me. I'm so glad to say I have not. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's no way that you could capture what Melissa wrote. Right. What Stephen directed, the actors he brought together and the time in history where the public opened their arms and was ready for it. Mm -hmm. You know, when all those things come together, you've got a hit. And and it was magic. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you say that, but Mac and me has a scene where the alien break dances on the counter of a McDonald's with the full menu of McDonald's on screen in the background. Uh, well, I think we're almost ready to jump into Cujo, but I do want to bring up the howling, uh, which I think has probably the most adorable werewolf design that I've ever seen in my <laughs> life with your character is <laughs> more of a were kitten. I think. Yeah. Kitten. Uh, do you, do you remember when you saw that makeup for the first time? Like what was kind of going through your, your mind? Cause the whole movie's rad as hell. Like I love that movie. Uh, and it, that ending is an all timer and that transformation is, is terrifying. And it's, it's so I- incredible. It's such a great choice to go. You've seen all these terrifying werewolves throughout the whole thing. And then you have this really agonizing transformation that you sell so well on, on, uh, 
you know, during the newscast. Uh, but then like, I love that it's kind of a, a cute design at the end of it because well, it's, again, it's a subverting expectation. Let me give you the inside story about how that happened. Do it. So <laughs> I had in my uh, contract that I would never appear as a, a werewolf. I don't know why, I guess back in the eighties, that was important if you were starring in a film. Don't ask me. <laughs> But anyway, well, I have that writer so, here. Any any interview I do with Scott, I, I will not appear as a werewolf. <laughs> it's just standard. So I finished, and they put the picture together, and they were showing it, you know, to review audiences, and everybody wanted to see Dee's character as a werewolf. So Joe called me. I was shooting Cujo, and Joe Dante called me, and I went. Yeah, I don't care, Joe. He says, well, it's in your contract. I said, well, I didn't ask for it, so I really don't care. But my character has fought so hard against this. Can you make her just a little more vulnerable than the rest of the werewolves? And so they took that idea. That's an animatronic that you see at the end. And they took that idea and made what I call the Bambi werewolf. (laughs) and that's yeah that's how i mean have you ever interviewed joe dante Uh, i've I've met him many times Uh, yeah well he's got such an amazing sense of humor right and he put a lot of his own money into buying those old commercials and the clips from the uh, original wolfman and all that stuff because the studio done, didn't want to opt in on fi- financially um, doing that, hmm. which really took the picture up to a more A level if a horror film, if they ever think a horror film can be an A film. I, that's a whole other discussion. Right. But um, knowing Joe and Rob and just taking that one note I threw off, I can imagine the fun they had. <laughs> creating that little Bambi werewolf for me. It was, yeah, it was, it was cute. And it was no pun intended, a really nice button on the movie. <laughs> yeah, Rob Bottin's a genius. And, and uh, that, that is uh, an incredible design. Yeah, like I said, I just love how it, it ends the movie in a way that you wouldn't, wouldn't really expect it. Yeah. 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 I think that this is a good time to actually start talking about Kuja. What do you guys yes. think? Yes. Yes. Let's talk oh, Kuja. I got stories. Give me some <laughs> stories. I want to start real quick with um with uh, Stephen King himself. Like were you familiar with with uh, either the movies or the books before? Cuz this is fairly early on in King's career um well, when when you did I, Cujo, but I know but I'm alive, aren't I? Yes. How I, mean, <laughs> I mean he's he's an integral part of our society of our, right. you know, of who we are. Uh, I I can't imagine anybody going to an actor and saying, well, it's a Stephen King project. And they go, who? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you true. know, so uh, of course, of course, I knew who Stephen King was. Now I have to be truthful and say I had not read Cujo when I got the offer to do the film. Mm-hmm. And then I made a conscious choice not to read Cujo until after I did the film. Fascinating. Uh, because uh, our beautiful producer, Dan Blatt, and I had a lot of conversations and he said, well, you know, D, there's a lot of supernatural stuff going on in the book that we're not going to explore, which if you've of course, read the book, you know, we don't go into in the movie because in a movie, you you know, you have to keep your focus narrowed down. Mm -hmm. And, and so we made it about the rabies and about fear. For me, Cujo was always, always a story about what a mother's love would do to protect her kid. Yeah. That's what drove me through the whole film. Did you know the differences, like besides the uh, the supernatural part? But did you know, like uh, that in the book, the the son doesn't make it out uh, when you were oh, filming yes. it, or was that something you discovered after? 
Uh, no, no, I actually was invited into those discussions. And I think my answer would be the same today, guys, quite frankly. But I looked at Dan and I said, no way, you can't put an audience through what we're going to put them through in the 80s. <laughs> and, and half these people will never have read the book that come to the movie. We can't kill the kid at the end. And uh, Dan and Louis Teague, our beautiful director, agreed with me. We all agreed with each other. And Stephen King actually called Dan when he got the, the movie and screened it and said, thank God you didn't kill the kid at the end. <laughs> he said I, he had never gotten more hate mail about anything uh, from his fans than when he killed the kid at the end of each of Cujo. Wow. I think that's yeah. the right move though. It would have been too, it would have been too much for the movie. Well, what would have been the point guys? <laughs> right. Really? Well, what would have been the sure. point? Why didn't I just throw the kid out in the beginning scene and let the dog get him? You know, you can't. No. See, pragmatically, you probably should have. But you can't kill kids and dogs. You can't <laughs> kill kids and dogs. You can't. And and you would have done both if you'd stuck to the to stuck yeah, to the. Yeah, not unless you you know, and like in all the dog movies, they die and come back as another dog that you love even more. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, it's just for and I'm a huge huge animal lover and activist. So one of my first questions to Dan was, look, I have to be sure if I'm going to do this film that these dogs are taken care of. And he said, D, the trainer, Carl Miller, who had those dogs trained within an inch of their lives. There were not, there were actually 13 different dogs that played Cujo and I think nine St. Bernard's because he wanted to make sure, well, there were two points. First of all, all the dogs were trained to do different tricks. One was a digger, one was a growler and a barker, one was a jumper, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then the second point was we have to rest the dogs. We have to rest the dogs in between days. So he trained that many dogs. And we had a guy in a dog suit, a stuntman. And the real dogs did almost all the shots. But mm -hmm. there were, like when he rams his head into the car, mm -hmm. uh, that's intercut between a spring head that they had made and the stunt double dog. And the real dog and the big attack scene is intercut the stunt woman with the real dog and me with the stunt man. I swear to God, Neil should have won for editing. Uh, yeah. I, I can't even see the seams in that. Yeah, I hadn't watched Cujo in many years until very recently. And we, uh, uh, we did an episode on it. And so I, you know, went back to the book, went back to the movie. And the first thing I was really blown away by how well the movie holds up does not Thank look you. dated at all. Uh, and, and specifically with all the stuff with the dog. And so I watched the movie and I think I was talking about it on Twitter or something. And someone pointed out the thing about the guy wearing the dog suit. I was like, what? There was a guy in a dog suit in there. And so I immediately sat back down and watched it again and tried to spot the shots where there where it was obviously not a dog or could be uh, the dude in the suit. And um, I had a really hard time with it. So you're exactly right. Like oh, there were yeah. a few shots I mean, I like close ups where I was like, I think that might have been it. But it was legitimately hard to tell. No, they would have never used the stent guy for a close up. Really? That's and, crazy. And at the end, oh, my God, we could not get one of the St. Bernards to jump through the glass. <laughs> so we there were two labs, two Labradors. So we put a Labrador in uh, a dog suit 
and that looked stupid. And then the stunt guy tried it and that looked stupid. And finally, Carl said, all right, I've got one dog that I think will do it. You get one take. So we brought in three cameras and we shot in slow motion, one of them, and covered everything that we could at the same time. Man, did it pay off in that <laughs> slow-mo shot when that dog comes through the yeah. window in the last scene. It was such a set where everybody had to work together. And I want to take a moment to give a shout out to Danny Pintaro because right. let me tell you, I got up every day of that shoot and I thank God that I got that kid. Because <laughs> if I'd gotten a kid that you had to coach a lot or that was scared to do it or whose mother was intervening all the time. If that would have been hell and working mm. with Danny was like working with another adult actor. Wow. Oh my God. He was amazing. Yeah. He's excellent in it. And there are some, there are some ahead. sequences in there in some of the attacks where I'm almost convinced that like that he's terrified, like in legit in real life, like because he he acts the way that you know that I've seen like my nephews act when they are legitimately upset. Uh, so like it was was that the case? Did he actually like get that scared, yes. or or was that just his him yes, being an amazing I, actor? I think both. Right, uh, but the first day, Lewis said to me, "D, do you think after we?" do the long shot. Do you think maybe you guys could just react to somebody at the window? <laughs> so I knew the answer, but I said, well, let's try it. So we did it. And Lewis came up and went, rah, rah, rah. well, Danny started laughing hysterically. The crew, <laughs> the crew started laughing hysterically. And Lewis says, yeah, I don't think so. So, Really looking at that big dog, even though we know knew there was a trainer there to grab him and ring, it was scary being that close to him up on the car and up on the windows and, you know, the digging and the whole thing. It was, and the barking, the, I think the noise more than anything helped us fully get into the reaction. But, you know, before every scene, and I do this with all the kids I work with, I would say, okay, Danny, so this is what's happening, and this is what we have to do in the scene, but you know we're acting, right? You know that you're not in any danger. Right. You know that the doggies are all trained. So we got to the big scene when he has his seizure. Yeah. And he says, oh, D, I, that happened to me when I was little. He was six, right? You want to see? And he goes right into it. And I went, well, I ain't going to have to worry that much about this kid. Drew, on the other hand, when we were doing E.T., Drew was four. So she hadn't quite crossed into that place where they understand fantasy and reality are different. Mm -hmm. So we were getting ready to do the big scene where E.T. was dying. And I went to the adjoining soundstage and I said, okay, Drew, we're going to go do the scene where we see E.T. and he's dying and all the bad men are there. But, you know, E.T.'s just acting like we act, right? She looked at me and she said, I know, Dee, do you think I'm stupid? <laughs> so I picked her up. We walked in. She took one look at E.T., burst into tears and said, Dean's dying! He's dying! He's dying! And Stephen's going, roll it! Roll it now! <laughs> right? So you just never know when they're that young because they don't distinguish a lot of times between fantasy and reality. We had to keep two guys running E.T. all the time because Drew would go over to the corner where he was and start talking to him. <laughs> so Stephen had somebody on him all the time to keep him alive for her. One, that's awesome. That's sweet as hell. Uh, but two, 
I I get it. Like I I went I got to visit the set of one of the the Muppets the Muppet movies that they they did the Jason oh, Segel Muppet things and I they had us interview like Kermit and Piggy and all that and you know I'm standing there and I'm seeing seeing the performer under, you know like down on their knees whatever holding the puppet up and I'm looking at them and I'm talking to them and then the second that they're like all right it's time to interview Kermit. Like I don't look at them anymore. I'm just looking at Kermit and answering and picking up on his things. It was the most bizarre, th- and I'm aware of it as it was happening. You're and I'm like, what the hell? You, psychological crazy thing is going on there? Yeah, you you accept the reality and you move into it, which is what know. we do as actors. Speaking of Cujo, seems like it. Given the amount of time you spend in the car, given how technical some of those shots must have been it seems like it would have been kind of a grueling shoot was it oh you think yeah <laughs> like how many how many days cumulatively do you think you actually oh, spent yeah. in the car more than half the shooting time how long was much the shoot more, much more than half um i think it was a little over eight weeks oh my god um, they um they treated me for exhaustion for three weeks after the film was over. Good uh, Lord. I, I totally depleted my adrenals. I'm, I still have to take adrenal supplements. People don't understand, you see, that your brain and your body chemistry does not know you are acting. Right. So your body goes through all the chemical reactions that you would if you were really in fight or flight constantly for eight weeks. Yeah, it it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Even, even with my husband dying and all the flying back and forth to New Zealand, Cujo tops that, I got to tell you. They were supposed to give me a week off after the, we shot all the car stuff because we did that first. Oh, wow. The, well, and, you know, everybody always wants to know, my God, how did you deal with the heat? We were actually cold most of the time. I had them finally put a heater in the bottom of the car because Danny's lips were quivering all the time. It was just relentless. They would pick me up around 530 in the morning. And I was lucky if I got off the set by 730 or 8 o'clock. Good God. And every scene was, how do I break down? How much do I break down? Which way do I break down? How far do I go, right? Right. So it was, yeah. But it's the work I'm proudest of, I can tell you that. You should be. You're you're tremendous in the movie. And what I, I don't I think a lot of people maybe don't understand is is just how internal you have to be there because the only other character that you interact with that's you know that's not the dog, you know, is, is your, uh, you know, your son, your character's son, uh, here, but you have to express so much because the mother isn't going to be telling the scared child what her fears are and all that stuff. That's all stuff you have to internalize and then Mm -hmm. express, you know, just through body language, through looks, you know, through the stuff you're, you're, you're not to the lies that you're telling the, the, the boy, you know, like all this stuff is, it's so much more nuanced than I think that uh, especially audiences at the time didn't give credit to maybe audiences now are a little bit more open to, uh, to giving that kind of um, credit and accolades to, to genre. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe a little bit. I think a quiet place opened up, you know, a little bit more acceptance yeah. for that, but there's so many really amazing performances in the horror and suspense genre that just never go recognized. It's it's kind of a sin, I think. But anyway, it's weird how when you play characters like that, you go so far into the character. Like, for example, when I broke the glass to get the kid out and take him up to the farmhouse. So Lewis comes to me and says, okay, Dee, we're going to do this in slow motion. So we really need you to hit the glass. You can't break it, but we really need you to really try and break it. Now, we had rehearsed the whole scene through so that we knew what action, so we didn't get locked into anything. So, of course, third time I break the glass. 
<laughs> yeah. Right. Now I don't hear cut. I'm sure they're all standing there going, holy shit, she broke the glass. <laughs> and I don't hear cut. And so I keep going. But part of my brain and my mind is going, get the kid. You've got to get the kid. You've got to get him up to the house. You've got to save him. And the other side of me is going, you can't bring him over the glass, D. The glass wasn't supposed to break. You can't drag him out like you were yours. Get the kid, get the kid, get the kid. <laughs> so I do this stupid waddle out of the car with the kid in my arms because I didn't want Danny to get hurt. And I don't hear cut until we get all the way up to the farmhouse. And then Dan Blatt runs up and he goes, oh, my God, D, are you okay? And I look down and, of course, my arms cut. And, oh, no. and the medic comes in and he puts an, a bandage around that's the same color of my skin. And, and Dan looks at me and he says, I hate to ask, but do you think we could do one more? Because <laughs> this is our last day on the, of course, sure, let's go, let's do it. I mean, so we did one more, but they ended up using the, uh, the first one. And thank God. For Jan Bont that he didn't go, holy fuck, it just stopped shooting, you know? <laughs> right. uh-huh. yeah, you said you're, I, I, uh, also, you're okay. you said you're an a- animal lover, uh, which so am I. But I got to wonder if you were put off by dogs at all after this movie. Oh, no. No? Oh, no. Those dogs were so sweet. They were, they were so, so sweet. I... It was everything I could do not to sit down and love on him, but I wasn't allowed to. Oh, did they keep uh, you separated? Like- oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Because their loyalty and their complete attention mm-hmm. had to be on the trainers. Right. So they couldn't be allowed to. Like form a bond with you. Exactly. Exactly. Right. right. It makes sense. There's a shot in, in Cujo that I'd love to talk about. And you mentioned Jan de Bont. Uh, there's that great 360 shot that happens yes. in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, to me, it's one of the things that I think that elevates the movie, you know, beyond the great performances, beyond, you know, the perfect look in, uh, you know, just tone of the film. Uh, but there are those moments where you get that, you know, almost arty shot that is visually giving the audience the experience that your character is feeling right. And uh, do you have any memory of them setting up that, that, oh, uh, that yes, there was a big discussion. <laughs> I mean, look guys, half the movies in a car, how creative does the director and the DP have to get yeah. right? right. And so between the two of them, I think they came up with the idea of carving into the roof of the car and dropping the camera in on a crane that could do a 360 like that and show our disorientation and and the heat and losing it and, you know, everything that we were feeling. You know, the beauty for me of a set like Cujo is how everybody came together and worked together. What about this? What about this? Hey, we can try that. Oh my God, let's try this. From the editor to the director to the DP to the actors. I think these days, especially in TV, at least in my experience (laughs) with a lot of things, the actors are not invited to participate as much in the ideas or not made to feel that they can bring in their ideas as much. You really lose an incredible amount of creativity when you do that. I mean, Spielberg, the the big dinner table scene where Henry ends up saying, uh, my husband's in Mexico with Sally. Yeah. Well, I took such a hit when he said that as the character. And I literally remember thinking, oh my God, I can't let the kids see me cry about this. So I got up and left the table, which was the end of the scene, fortunately. 
But Stephen came over and said, Dee, why, what happened? What, what the tears, why'd you leave? And I told him what happened to me. And in that instance, he brought the crew in and said, look, you got a half an hour, build me a set with a sink and running water that I can take D over to from the din- dining table. And then he had me cross back into that big close-up where I say he hates Mexico. And all that happened because we trusted each other. We saw a moment and we went with it. The same thing happened on the Frighteners with Peter Jackson. It happened all the time on Cujo. And that's when you get the gold is when everybody trusts each other to go, hey, what about this? So, D, you talked about not reading Cujo until after you wrapped. Um, when you when you eventually, I assume you did eventually read the book, yeah. Oh yes. Uh, and what was the uh, what were your feelings? Did you did you like kick yourself for not like getting something you know that you would have thrown in the performance, or were you like able to read it passively and and just read it as a story? Well, yes, I could read it passively and. I I actually was happy that I hadn't read it before because I think it's such an incredible story the way Stephen writes it that I would have wanted to see if I could have worked in all that supernatural stuff in some way but it would it would not have been congruent with the rest of the movie. So I think it it would have been a little confusing for right. me. And you were right, like the tonally, it, it doesn't, the, the two things are, are fairly different. And uh, like uh, we talked about, you know, him killing the kid at the end of the book, uh, which I, I read he like said that that was a surprise to him because he doesn't really outline very much. He like writes off the cuff. That's his process. And he was, he was telling uh, a reporter, I remember at the time, he was like, why did you kill the little boy? And he's like, I didn't mean to. He didn't wake up. Like he like, yeah, my intention wasn't that he was going to die, but just that's the way wow, the character I had never heard. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, see, he writes like I write, kind of through the channel. Yeah. That's what that's what you're describing is he just opens his channel and lets lets the thing write itself. That's how I act. That's how I write. Right. Yeah, well, and it the, in the novel that leaves us with a it, I think it's actually a very beautiful ending. It's a very bittersweet ending, but it's you know, there there's something beautiful on the written page you're right exactly it wouldn't work on the film you can't put an audience through that and then you know then still kill the kid at the end uh but there is something really beautiful in the novel where the final pages are are about that broken uh marriage mending itself over the shared trauma you know they're they're, they're you know nothing's ever going to be the same yeah you know, uh, well i think we did capture that in right. the last moment of the film where you see him come to the ranch and run up and I've got my arms out to him. Yeah. With Danny in my arms and the three of us come together and it's a freeze frame. Mm-hmm. That's, and I'm very, that's what our intention was. Yeah. And I'm very glad that there, you know, the, a lot of eighties movies would, would have uh, ended in a lot of movies today for that matter, but definitely in the eighties would have ended with, the man coming in and saving the day at the end, you know, but they, that's not how it is in the book. It's not how you guys did it. Like everything that, that Donna Trenton goes through in everything that uh, she risks and, and every decision she makes, it's all up to her. And, and, you know, eventually even at the end, her story is, is wrapped up there. She doesn't need an outside force to right. come in and that's save right, her. baby. The strength <laughs> of a mother. <laughs> right. power. She's ferocious in that last scene. That's right. I mean, you know, I've always said about Gabrielle, don't screw with my kid. (laughs) You can, you can can get by with a lot of stuff from me, but don't you dare screw with my kid. (laughs) Well, Dee, I think that kind of brings us uh, to the end here. Unless Scott, you have any other things you'd want to bring up? I don't, but uh, D, what are you what are you working on right now? What do you do? You have anything you want? Oh gosh, well, you know, nobody's working on much, (laughs) Um, right? I I have a callback for a commercial, so I'm hoping uh, that'll come through. And you know, I was telling you uh, 
Barbara Crampton, whom I know you you've interviewed. She's mm-hmm. just such a fabulous lady. And Scout Taylor Compton and Kane Hodder and Daniel Harris and I, I had this idea to do a 20-minute short horror film. And they all came together and did it with me. Gabrielle co-directed it with our DP. And uh, everybody did it safely in the confines of their home. But it's a really fun take on COVID and everything that's going on. It's called Stay Home. So be looking for it in the next month, guys. We should be finishing it up this week. And I've got three films coming out that I got in the can before COVID hit. Await the Dawn and 13 Fanboy are two of the bigger ones. Mm -hmm. So my fans can look out for those. And, you know, if anybody has an interest in spiritual stuff and getting your life on track and creating more of what you want, I would love you to come visit my website at IamDWallace.com. Right on. And you know what? One more thing. I want to give a shout out to my daughter's incredible book, Eat, Pray, Hashtag FML. (laughs) <laughs> all it's a about, great title. yeah and it's amazon's bestseller list now um it's all about her tragedy of the divorce and getting dumped and what she went through and how she took herself to europe and started loving herself again and empowering herself but it's it's raunchy and it's uh, loving and yeah, people are just embracing it. So it's again on Amazon, eat, pray, hashtag FML. Man, am I mad I didn't come up with that title. That is so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, she had a couple of big publishers interested, but they wanted to take out all the F words which she starts every chapter with. And she said, no, you know, I got to tell it in my voice and I got to express it the way it went down. Right. And I've got to use the real text messages. So she decided to self-publish and she's sold over, I think, 12,000 copies now. Nice. Wow. So, yeah. Well, awesome. We'll be on the lookout for that. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time and looking back at, at this stuff. It's been a, a, an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Oh, it's been great, guys. I've had a great time with you. 